All right. Welcome to class. It's great to have you here today. Donna's not here today, so Jenny's going to be doing our time of announcement. And I believe that mic is on. So let's read our verse together this week. That's Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Uh, we are starting a brand new series today on the book of Romans, and at least the key chapters in the book of Romans that we'll be addressing, since we're going through a series on doctrine, I thought this would be a great place for us to land to help support that lesson that Pastor Jonathan's going to be going through. I want you to begin thinking about this church that receives this letter. I mean... I mean, when you think about it, the book of Romans is a long letter. I mean, he's sending out, out a lot of information. So obviously, he is wanting to communicate something that's extremely important to this church. And this was a very pivotal church that he was writing to and had desired to go to. So when we look at this, I think Romans 1.16 is, from my perspective, one of the key verses for the entire book. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so as we look at this, I want you to think of the book of Romans in the perspective of the gospel. Now, I don't want you to think about it, though, in the, a gospel kind of presentation, per se. Okay, We use the book of Romans. In fact, one of the, one of the most popular ways of leading people to Christ is called the Romans what? Romans wrote. And so they're going through the book of Romans to lead someone to Christ. But I want you to think about it in reference to what is the impact of the gospel? What is the gospel? And how does that impact me as an individual? So I think we begin this book. If you can read it out of the translation of the choice, this is I think out of the NIV. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm not going to read the entire chapter here, just verses 1 through 7. Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son. Who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. And who, through the spirit, that's the holy spirit of holiness, was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. To, to all those in Rome, and obviously these letters... He was writing to the book of, uh, to the church at Rome, but it was then passed on, and it's for our own edification, was added to the canon of Scripture because of its impact and what it was intended to do as inspired Scripture. The apostle saw himself as the servant or slave of Jesus Christ. He was a bond servant. 
He was somebody who actually willingly, a bondservant was someone who says, I am going to choose, I am going to give up all of my rights, I willingly do this for you. I am going to be your servant, I owe nothing, I have nothing, I am all yours. And that was this idea of a bondservant. And when you became a follower of Christ, when you have this idea, if you go through the book of Romans, you're going to see this whole concept that ultimately when we became a follower of Jesus Christ, we gave up ownership. We talked about uh, two weeks ago, no, last week, being stewards. What, is that? what does that mean, to be a steward? In other words, you're, you're not an owner. You manage what's God's. And so when we became a follower of Christ, it wasn't just this idea of, hey, I get to go to heaven. Woo! But do, are we looking forward to heaven? Yes. Absolutely. Okay? I'm looking forward to heaven. I am so done with this earth. Okay? I don't know about you, but I'm done with it. And all the, you know, the stuff that goes along with it. But nevertheless, the idea here is, is that when you became a follower of Christ, a lot of people don't understand this. And this is part of the idea that Paul's trying to get across. When you became a follower of Christ, you said, I no longer am an owner of my life. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do what God has said for me to do. I, he's my Lord. He's my King. I don't understand all of that, and that's what sanctification is about. That's what he talks about. That's why he gets into this whole idea, this process. Why are we meeting? Yes, we meet because we have coffee. And a lot of you brought some great food, and you like the fellowship, and you get to meet people, and you get to get to know people, and that's wonderful. But I hope that you also come to learn God's word, to become a, a, a stronger, a more faithful servant of Jesus Christ. And so what he's trying to do here is, he's, he says, I have been set apart for the gospel. And the question that I have for us today is, do we see that as our identity and vision? Do we see ourselves, do I see myself as a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ? Do I see myself as someone who is set apart for the gospel? In other words, my life is about sharing Jesus. Is my life about sharing what God has done? Or is it just kind of like a side job? Is this kind of like it's just a side ministry? Is it the whole concept of what I am? Or is this just a portion, a small portion of what I do on Sundays or whatever the case might be? The gospel was promised in the Old Testament and it was Jesus. See, this is what it's all about. Isaiah 53, 6. Someone read that for me. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God the Father, the Lord, has laid on him. Who's the him? Jesus. Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He laid the sins of the world on Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The word gospel is good news, okay? And that's the whole idea of this. This is what it's all about. In other words, God sent his son to die for us, and he gave us good news. We don't have to die in our sin. We don't have to be punished for sin. We're no longer under the wrath of God. We are under the mercy and grace of God. Paul quotes the Old Testament 61 times in his letter, in the whole book of Romans. He quotes it, different aspects of it. Jesus was a descendant of David. And he made that very clear, because, you know, this is who I am. This is who this person was. 
He was ascended to David. 2 Timothy 2.8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. See, Jesus is the gospel. So as we go through, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's not about, well, I'm not ashamed of the Romans road. No, I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Okay? I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. What does that look like in my life? How, how am I ashamed of Jesus Christ? How do we deal with this? And you know what? There are times throughout history in which you may have and I have been put on a situation where we have been tempted to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And we have to be, you know, wise as a serpent but harmless as a dove. And we're trying to think through all of these things. And it's hard sometimes to navigate. For example, for years I was the endorsing agent for chaplains in the military. And I was, I was the person that was responsible for the denomination, the Liberty Baptist Fellowship, in which they would go out forth from. Today, the Liberty Baptist Fellowship, I think, is the, between us and the Southern Baptists, we are the largest endorsing agent in the world. Liberty is the largest endorsing. We have over a thousand, currently, a thousand chaplains in all branches. It's amazing what they've done. Okay? In all kinds of different places. So as we do this, as we talk about this, we, we have these individuals who are going out in ministry, but they're often asked to do this. They're, well, we're in a pluralistic setting. When you pray, do not pray in Jesus' name. Well, the chaplains would call me and go, Lou, I've got to pray before this ceremony, and they're asking me not to pray in Jesus' name. What do I do? And I call, call the chief chaplains and go, okay, this is discrimination. Okay? You know, no, we, have, we don't want to offend anybody. But here's the question, though. Why would they be offended if I'm exercising my religion freely? They're offended because you're not praying in Jesus. Yeah. If they don't like Jesus, that's their issue, not our chaplain's issue. That's right. And so I said, here's how you do this. And this is what I would recommend. They didn't have to. They were not obligated to. But I said this. When you pray, start before you pray. Just say this. I will be praying in my tradition in Jesus' name. You pray in, in your tradition. Let's pray. Nice. That makes everybody happy. It's like, okay, when you're praying in your tradition, I'll pray in my tradition. Right? Well, it's like people, they're going to want you to be ashamed of Jesus. <laughs> Revelation 22, 16 says, I... Jesus speaking here, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. He's saying, you know, I was connected in the Old Testament. I was brought here for this reason. And I am the gospel that was talked about in the Old Testament. And I'm going to be, I am, I am the gospel of the New Testament. Jesus was appointed or declared the son of God based upon his resurrection. In other words, did they know Jesus was the Son of God because he said he was? <clears throat> no. In fact, he was even declared the Son of God because of his miracles that he performed. That was not how he evidenced himself. Why? Can someone tell me why the miracles wouldn't have evidenced himself as the Son of God? Prophets did miracles in the Old Testament. 
People did miracles in the Old Testament. We see this in the, remember when um, Moses was with Pharaoh? Were they doing things that seemed miraculous too? Yes. Yes. So the miracles themselves, even though they were awe-inspiring, didn't validate the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. But it did by the resurrection. Someone read for me 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the, the resurrection of Christ from 1 Corinthians 15 clearly indicates that he was declared the Son of God by the fact that he rose from the dead. In fact... The interesting thing about Rome, okay, and as you go into this, and you go into the scriptures, you find that many of the Pharisees who were opposed to Jesus became followers of Jesus. So you have Jews. The, the, the gospel has been presented to the Jews for centuries. They were, they were first in receiving this. But they didn't all accept, they, they were not buying into it because they were looking for a king, not Jesus, born in a manger, living a sinless life and dying on a cross. They wanted to be victorious. You know, sometimes we think that same way. If we're not careful, we think the Christian life is one of victory. And I should have no problems. Because if, I, if I'm a Christian, God's going to take care of me and everything's gonna, I'm going to be victorious in everything. I'll be in control. And that's not the case. How many of you have had tr troubles and trials and, and struggles since you became a follower of Jesus Christ? Thank you for your honesty. Okay? Becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't save us from trouble. What it does is it gives us the power to endure the trouble. Mark, to get through it. 1 Peter 3.18, one of the first verses I memorized after coming to Liberty uh, under the influence of, of um, uh, easy for me to remember. No, 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 no. My boss, ultimately. No, the, his boss. <laughs> Sumner Wendt. Sumner Wendt taught me this verse and said, you memorize this verse, and I memorized it. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just, the righteous, for the unrighteous. To bring up you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the spirit. He suffered for our sins. But there's a purpose for that. He suffered for our sins ultimately so that you could have life. That you could have it abundantly. That you would be free. That the burden of sin would be gone in your life. That you no longer had to deal with the burden of it. And when, when Paul begins to write this letter, he's writing it to make sure that they understand there's two different types of people. They are the righteous and the unrighteous. And we are going to have to deal with that. Paul's letter called the Gentiles, the Romans, to obey Christ through faith. So he's calling them, if you're reading verses 1 through 7, following along, he's calling them, the Romans, to obey Christ through faith. 
He wrote to believers in Rome, loved by God and called to be holy. Interesting. When you look at the original language, um, if, I, if you come back here, if you actually look at this passage, which is something you know I, I deal with a lot, he begins talking about, he says, to all in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints. To be saints. And, and I want you to understand that. For those of you who may be new to this class, who haven't been here, I just want to make a very brief statement. Ask yourself this question. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Are you born again? If that is true, say yes. 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 Then you are also a saint. You are a saint. In fact, you are as righteous as you will ever be. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself more righteous. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself less righteous because it's not your righteousness to begin with. He who knew no sin, who's the he who knew no sin? Became sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. It's his righteousness. That's why you are called a saint. That's why you are the friend of God. You are the friend of God. And that's why you as a saint are someone who's, and the word saint just means set apart. In other words, God set you apart from this world and unto himself. You're a child of God. If you go back to the book of John, John begins to say, you know, there's something very special about you. You have been called the children of God. You're a child of God. Before you are, are born again, are saved, who are you a child of? The devil. And that's the case of everyone in this world who doesn't know Jesus. That's why the gospel, Jesus, is so important to the world. And if we really understand that, the people that we work with that aren't saved, that's our mission. But do we think that way? Is it about the bottom line? Is it about making money? Is it about building a house and buying cars and stuff and, and retiring one day and living with that picket fence and painting that picket fence and scraping that picket fence and rolling the, the lawn around it and taking a trimmer and trim around the fence? Anybody else exhausted? Yeah. Have all this stuff. <laughs> exactly. But the point, all of this then is this, is that Paul sets this up and he says, you know what? The gospel is about Jesus. And how do we view that? Paul was mission-minded. Am I mission-minded? In other words, is my life mission-minded? Even if, you're, if, you're, if your job is, is considered a quote-unquote secular, non-Christian job, are you a minister wherever you are? What is that role? No. And, and, and let me just tell you, for those of you who don't know me that well, some of you know me very well. When I became a follower of Christ at nine, I was clueless of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. I mean, I was all in. But I had no clue what that meant. And so by the time I was 
16 years old, my siblings would go out drinking, and I'd go bar hopping with my brother. When I was 16 years old, I'd go bar hopping with them. And I would drink with them, and I would um, at times be intoxicated with them, um, and I lived my life. And we would, I, because I had a beard, and because I didn't go to kindergarten, my birthday's in October, so I couldn't go to kindergarten when I was five, because September 30th was the cutoff, so I didn't even go to kindergarten until I was six. So that by the time I was 16, I was only a sophomore in high school. It was great. I was the oldest, I had a car, I was the designated buyer. And I'd go through, we had drive-throughs in Ohio. You could get milk, you could get alcohol, you could get chips, and I was the guy that drove through the drive-through and asked them for wine and beer, and they never carded me, and I took it to the party, and as I was drinking with them, I would share Jesus with them. That's how dumb I was. And when I graduated, I'll never forget, I've told some of this story before, but I went home for Thanksgiving, and one of the girls that I witnessed to at those parties, she came up to me and she goes, oh my gosh, I gotta tell you the story. I was at Ohio State, I'm in my dorm room, and above me, they were having a satanic seance. And they were, I was scared out of my mind. They were praying to Satan to come. And I got on my knees and I said, God, the, the God that Luke talked about, save me now, Jesus. Save me now. I am scared out of my mind. And she goes, I just want you to know I became a follower of Christ that day. And I started attending church the following week. And I got the foolishness of preaching. At least the fool that was preaching. <laughs> you know? God used that in spite of me. God uses his word in spite of us. We're not always going to get it right. We're not always going to be the perfect saints that God calls us to be. But I was a saint, drinking and sharing Jesus. You know, there's a, there's a problem with that. But we're still going through this. He goes, he's mission-minded. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, who I serve in my spirit and preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, as at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And actually, I should have included verse 17. For the gospel in the gospel... A righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. He was grateful for the testimony of the Roman church. Their faith was known around the world. Why? Why would their faith be known around the world? They were being persecuted. They were being persecuted? All around the world. All roads lead to Rome. Everybody was coming through there. 
And they would, they would hear the gospel. And then would they stay in Rome? No, they're going on their way. That's the amazing part of the gospel, what was taking place that God chose at this time to bring Jesus to this period. And at the church of Rome, how their faith was influencing people. People were getting saved and literally going around the world. They, he prayed for them daily. Why would he pray for this church daily? I just said it. Because they're influencing. And let me tell you, I pray for you daily because of your influence. You are interacting with a diverse group of people all the time. And the question is whether we're going to be Jesus and promote Jesus to those influencers. We're, we're involved in a ministry here that literally it impacts the world. We're part of something bigger than ourselves by being part of this community. But even being a part of this class, you are an impactor of lives. And what you say and do matters for good or for evil. God can use what we say and do here. And he knew this church at Rome was the same way. And this is the thing. There were Jews and there were Greeks. There were Gentiles in the church at Rome. Their influence was amazing in how God was using it. He wanted to use his spiritual gifts to bless them and be blessed by them using their spiritual gifts. So the question then becomes, how should I use my spiritual gift? How do you use your spiritual gift? What's your spiritual gift? So real quick, let's just, I want to hear from some of you. What is your spiritual gift? What's your spiritual gift? Somebody raise your, raise your hand up. Yeah. Exhortation. Gift of helps. <coughs> Serving. Serving. Administration. Administration. Hospitality. Hospitality. You know, here's, here's what I'd like all of us to do. Know and apply your spiritual gift. Know it and share it because it edifies us. That's why Paul says, I want to impart a spiritual gift to you. He wasn't wanting to go over and go lay his hands on them per se and go, okay, I'm going to give you another spiritual gift. He wants to impart the gospel, his knowledge of Jesus. That's the gospel, Jesus. So he wants to teach them more about Jesus so they can apply it to use that. But then he recognizes he needs it as well. Did Paul have some rough edges? Yeah. And he needs the encouragement from them too. Because I don't, I don't know about you, but it's easily, it, you can get discouraged in ministry. Okay? You can get discouraged. You can get tired. You can get to the place where you go, I'm done. Everybody can do that. Not somebody like myself. I mean, like yourself. You, may, you can get there and you go, oh, I'm just tired. And you know this pandemic has really impacted that. There are some who just go, I'm done, I'm tired, and I'm just not going to do the extra effort. I'm not going to make it happen. He wanted to share the gospel and wasn't ashamed of it. Why do followers of Christ not focus on the gospel today? Sin. Pardon? Sin. Sin? Busyness. Laziness? Busyness. Oh, busyness, sorry. But busyness is a big one. Selfishness. Selfishness. 
Fear? Yeah. Embarrassment. I think probably that is one of the most uh, impactful ones because they're embarrassed that they may be asked a question they don't know the answer to. But let me encourage all of you. You don't know how to have to know everything, neither do I. Let me ask you a question. Okay? I've asked you a question. I'm going to ask you another one. If, if someone, if you, if you ask them something, okay, and they think that, if you ask me a question, and I said to you, that's a good question, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm willing to find out. Would you get angry and upset with me, and would you be like, why am I even coming to this class if you don't know the answer to my question? Are you kidding me? Would you do that? And neither will they. When a non-believer asks you a question and you go, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out for you. Or you want to do it together? That's not something that they're going to go, so you call yourself a Christian and don't know the answer to my question? They're not going to think that way. So don't be afraid of getting involved in conversations. And when they ask you a question you don't know the answer to, it's okay. Find out the answer with them or by yourself and come back to them. There's, there's power in the gospel, the good news of Christ. It brings salvation to all who believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The righteousness of God is revealed. The word justified means to be declared righteous. Okay? A righteousness of God is revealed. Romans 10.10. Someone read that for me. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So it's with your heart you're justified. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He knows your heart. And so he, he declares you righteous when you're justified. That's, it's a judicial act. We'll get into that more and we'll talk about that again in the future, but it, it, it means that you're declared righteous. He doesn't make you righteous. Okay? You're not a perfect person. He declares it to you. I declare you to be righteous. Here's the example, right? A, a person is before a judge. And that judge has that determining factor. And they declare the person to not be under the penalty of the law. You're not guilty. Okay? And you're free to go. Some people use the phrase, just as if you'd never sinned. I, I like that. It's true. But I think it goes much deeper than that. We, we are, we, it, it is just as if we never sinned. But we, have, we are sinners. But he declares us to be righteous anyways. He declares us to be righteous. Okay. The bottom line is, is that the God, the judge of this world, looks at you, okay, and he says, you're righteous. AJ, you're righteous. James, Stephanie, you're righteous. Righteous. Shalana, 
You're righteous. Each one of you, I can call your name. You are righteous. You are righteous. You are righteous. Not because of anything you've done. Look, it's not because you're the most amazing husband in the world to my daughter. But because God called you righteous when you accepted Jesus. Christ is received by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we live by faith, not by sight. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. So it's a free gift. We, we live by faith, not by sight, by what we do. We live by faith. We trust God in the midst of everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Finally, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See, their wickedness suppresses the truth. Or the sin around us in this world is suppressing the truth of the gospel. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made by God so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking, by their, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, Listen to the nightly news. You got it right there. They're gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. And some of you are going, can you read that one again? Okay. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They applaud it. Is that America today? Yes. God's wrath is judgment against sin. God's wrath is revealed in the Bible. So God's wrath is judgment. There's a judgment coming. There's the righteous Believers, the unrighteous, the unbelievers. 
And God's wrath is judgment against sin. It's not, it, it, it's not that God hates people. He hates sin. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. God's wrath was revealed by the cross. Matthew 27, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turned his back on the Son. The nanosecond in time in history, the Father and the Son were separated. I can't even imagine what that's like. I never will. And he became sin for us so that we can have his righteousness. You see that? God doesn't hate you. He loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son for us who suffered and died for us so that we could have abundant life. Imagine living a life without God. Imagine a world without God. It's almost like cities without police. God's wrath is revealed to godless and wicked people. It's not for us. His wrath is not for us. God's wrath is deserved. The existence of God can be known by all. Okay? All of us can know him. Because we've been all created in his image. Every one of us. Every human being. Everyone alive has been created in the image and likeness of God. Someone read for me Psalm 19, 1 to 6. Heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they give no words. No sound is heard from them. And their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has fixed the tent of the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Psalm 119, or Psalm 19, excuse me, gives us this understanding that regardless of anyone in the world, there is a inner desire and knowledge that God exists. And it's known by the heavens. That which has been made declares it over and over again. People have, from, you know, in various missions and tribes, organizations that have worked with, with uh, people around the world, Recognize when they talk to people, it's like, I knew there was something, I just didn't know what that was. God will reveal that to them. God's wrath is deserved. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify it or give him thanks or worship idols. Do people do this today? And not necessarily just worshiping idols, which they do. I mean, we, we have, I even mean, in the United States, there's a huge Buddhist temple in, in the Midwest. And outside, I mean, it's just outside, it's just massive Buddhist 
uh, shrines and things like that. And they're around the world, literally around in major cities. But I think also this idea of, of it's the issue of what do I worship? Not that I created it by hand, unless I may have done that and worship it as if something is going to take care of me. If I'm not careful, a 401k and a 403b, which I've created, can become my God. You know, my job, what if my family can become my God? Because everything revolves around them rather than him. God's wrath was poured out on humanity, gave them over to sinful desires in their hearts and their minds. They did evil and applauded and encouraged evil. That is exactly what has happened in our culture today. We see it happening, we see it encouraged, we see it supported. And when you don't say the right things, you get punished for it. And that's where we're at right now. And it's not getting better. So let's let's pray. Pray that we will be the gospel. Pray that we will be Jesus to the world around us. Pray that we'll be a spiritual influencer. Don't get discouraged. The gospel is powerful. Amen? Amen. We're not, if we're not ashamed of the gospel, can the gospel save sinners? Yes. Absolutely. Can God use you to be a positive influence to the world around us? Yes. Then let's do it for him. Let's pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus. I pray that your blessing will be upon this series and your word, obviously, won't return void. But help me to communicate in a way that will be understandable, interesting, uh, passionate, and at the same time, uh, applicable. So that when we walk out of here today, we will be more like Jesus Christ. We will be more willing to share who he is to the world around us and make a positive difference. We love you, Lord. Help everyone in this room and those that are away from us today for various reasons to know that they're loved. We pray for each need. And we ask that you will be the great God of this universe over them in their lives. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you all. Have a great week.